Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we meet the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts, and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect Magazine, and this week we're going to talk to Ivan Krastev and Leonard Bernardo about how nations should come to terms with their histories, particularly the difficult ones. Ivan is a political scientist and Leonard is vice president of the Open Society Foundations. The pair of them wrote an essay in the current issue of Prospect, taking on the subject of national reconciliation, looking at the curious case in particular of Stalin's revival in Russia. Despite the murderous history of the mustachio tyrant, Stalin is now more popular among young Russians, with even the country's intellectuals loathe or at least hesitant to exercise past demons. Why? And how far or not is it possible for countries like Russia to learn from those like Germany that have drawn a sharper line? And while we're at it, where does Britain and its newly talked about slaving past fit into this mix? Okay, well, let's start with Stalin and Russia, um, Ivan, because only in the last week we saw the historical investigator, Yuri Dmitriev, who'd unearthed many sites from a time of the Great Terror, being locked away on the basis of sex crimes. Now, as with, you know, Julian Assange and the Americans, we don't want to assume that just because you've got someone who's doing something that's uncomfortable for someone powerful, it's necessarily the case that they're not capable of doing something else that's just criminal. But at the same time, a lot of people thought this didn't look right at all. Yeah, listen, this is, uh, uh, this is a critical moment because what is interesting about the revival of Stalin and the image of Stalin in Russia uh, should be read in the context of the fact that in 1980s, during the Glasnost and Perestroika period, Russia was very much in a mood, which was not so different than what you are seeing in the United Kingdom today or the United States today. People have been absolutely kind of shocked by the level of brutality and murderous nature of the regime. There was a lot of historical publications. There was a lot of lovely debate. And back then, for example, in 1987, 88, 89, if somebody was going to told Russians that 30 years later, Stalin is going to be consensually accepted 
as an important and responsible national leader, no one was going to believe it. And with Lenny, when we started discussing it, the story is that people are saying what basically, for example, United Kingdom or the United States in their history debate today can learn from Germany. And that was, story was what they can learn also from Russia. Why the failure? How it happened that somebody who everybody knows has killed probably more Russians than anybody in history, any foreign leader, uh, any aggressor, why he is respected as a responsible leader, including among the younger generation. This is not the lack of knowledge. What has happened? And uh, for us, this was the question that really intrigued us because I do believe this is giving one very important kind of a aspect of what we're discussing today. Listen, of course, Putin and Putin's propaganda is part of the answer. But this is not the whole answer. Because in a certain way, uh, the story was that now Stalin is even more popular than it was in the late Soviet period when the propaganda was there. How it happened that out of the object of condemnation, he became the object of pride. And this kind of a dialectics between guilt and pride is what interested us most when we had been looking at uh, uh, what we're seeing in Russia, but also in other parts of the world. One of you just give us a little bit of a sense of how um, real this revival of Stalin is. I mean, we're not in a position yet where someone will put him on a banknote or something or put the statues back up, are we? No, no, it's sure, not. No. Yeah. no, please, no, Ivan, Ivan, finish. No, I just wanted to tell you something. Paradoxically, Putin himself is very careful with Stalin. So you are not going to listen to him praising Stalin openly. Uh, but what has happened, and this was an interesting story, uh, you remember this famous, the names of Russia, which was uh, the famous TV program trying to figure out who are the most important figures in the Russian history, which was a BBC program that basically Russia has adopted. Uh, and in the beginning of uh, uh, the Putin's period, it was very clear that what uh, the Russian leader, I mean, what Vladimir Putin didn't want was Stalin to be the most popular leader. Uh, there was even manipulation in the last day of the game in order to make Alexander Nevsky, a not uh, well-known figure in the Russian history, the most popular name uh, uh, of Russian leaders. But suddenly, basically, Stalin became the figure which not Putin himself, but many of the Putin supporters starting uh, to push and to promote exactly because the West was telling them that they should be ashamed of him. This was a kind of resistance to the West. You are not going to tell us whom we should respect. And secondly, what was quite important, particularly for the slightly more liberal part of the public, which has no reason to have any sentiment uh, to this kind of a murderous tyrant, the story was the West is attacking uh, uh, Stalin because they want to depreciate the role of the Soviet Union in defeating uh, fascism, which is the central kind of identity myth uh, uh, for the Putin's regime. So strangely, while in the 1980s and 1990s, the story was it was the Russian people who did it. It was the Soviet people who did it, stopping fascism. Suddenly, Stalin, out of nowhere, became one of the symbols of the Soviet victory. And I do believe this is the story. And this is why when you go to the opinion polls, and we're talking about independent, respected institutions, like the Levada Institute. Uh, they're saying that now the support 
for Stalin in the Russian public opinion is higher than in any moment uh, in the last uh, 40 years. Uh, and yet, as you say, like a generation ago, he was, his name was Dirk. But you can go back even further, can't you? You can go back to just three years after his death in 1956. He's denounced in pretty fierce terms by Khrushchev. Uh, and of course, there was some delicacy because the, the, the people running the government, many of them were implicated. But I mean, it, it was the cult of the personality. We don't want any more of this. You know, so it's got like anti-Stalinism has got quite deep roots. To be sure, Tom, to be sure. I should say a, a, a few things. First, there's some subtleties here. What we can learn from the Russian experience is obviously a provocation because no one these days believes there's anything to learn from the Russian experience or that which can be learned is only that which is malevolent. And here is, in fact, a story that could give us uh, historical purchase on Russia and its post-Soviet development in a way that uh, we believe is actually uh, quite profitable. In terms of Stalin, certainly the crimes of Stalin have been well known. That's, that, that's not to debate. And as you say, from 56, the so-called 20th Party Congress, the secret speech in which Khrushchev, in fact, uh, uh, delivered to the world uh, uh, but in the Soviet Union, for the uh, in the first instance, uh, the crimes of Stalin. But 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 the fact is, um, human rights activists, as we talk about in the piece, that themselves felt uncomfortable some years ago in Putin's second term. An example that Yvonne and I gave at a talk by Ann Applebaum on her book on the Gulag felt uncomfortable. People who have for years prided themselves on being public in their denunciation of Stalin, felt uncomfortable at that moment, piling on, as it were. That's the conundrum. That's the puzzle. How did that happen? As Yvonne said, it's a, it's, it's a question of humiliation. And how one can, and this is our own prescription for contending with the past, how do you transform that into a kind of pride. People know about the crimes of Stalin. That's not what is at issue. Stalin is not going to be resurrected in a way that some of the voices in the West uh, scaremonger. That's not happening. But it's, there's a subtlety there. Okay, the, the, the kind of happier example you give in the piece is about post-war uh, Germany. Interestingly, though, it's not like Khrushchev standing up three years after Stalin died. It does take getting on for a generation from the Second World War. So it's not the people and the friends of people who've done terrible things. It's the children and the friends of the, the, the friends of the children who've, of people who've done terrible things. Do you think that's inherent in this? Do you think that it has to uh, await the passage of time? Of course. Of course. I mean, the idea post-89, or in the case of the Soviet Union, post-91, that there was a sort of tabula rasa to be built upon, that culture and institutions didn't matter. In fact, they can be confected out of whole cloth. They can just sort of be produced de novo, was a massive failure in the imagination of the West. This is a generational question. As you say, it took until 68 in Germany, denazification imposed from without did not transform the debate within Germany that had to happen internally. That took a generation when 
the children of those that had fought in and been a part of uh, the Nazi regime came to terms on their own terms with what had transpired. That effectuated the change in, in mentality. And here's the interesting story, by the way, because this is what many people expected about Russia. They said the young Russians are going to be the one asking their parents where you had been in different periods of the communist period. What do you think about uh, Stalinist period? But the interesting story about Germany was that you have this almost 15 years of economic success and gaining self-confidence that brought 1968 when the generation of young people went back and said, listen, we're economically successful, but we're never going to be successful if we are not ready to face the past, uh, the past and basically starting to talk in a new way. This is for us was very important. We do believe that this type of a dealing with the past is very much based on being proud of the fact that I am facing a tough reality. Mm. You are doing this because you have the feeling that you are exceptional, that nobody is else is doing this. So the pride of the Germans was, yes, we did probably the most horrific things in the human history, but we are also proud because we are ready to talk openly about this. What happened in Russia is first, you didn't have this economic success after the end of communism, just the opposite. You have basically a story of economic failure. And then comes uh, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, who said, listen, in order to be proud Russian, you should try to stand for everybody of Russian history. I'm going to integrate the communist period, the Tsarist period, everything else, because this is the only way to prove our pride in history and not what we are doing. And this is what I find particularly important. And I do believe if we talk about the lessons, this is the lessons. The lessons is that this moment of pride, the fact that we're doing something that nobody else is doing, we're not simply trying to be the next Germans, we're not simply trying to be normal, but we try to be exceptional in the way we're understanding our past, is what gave Germany what they get and basically brought Russia where the Russia is now, with the total normalization of Stalin and the Stalinist period. I mean, one obvious difference between the two cases, as you've already alluded to, one of you, is that, you know, Stalin won the war and Hitler lost the war. And, you know, like ideological sensibilities aside, you know, you're going to be written more positively into your nation's story if you won a war than if you, if you lost one. But of course, with Germany, we also saw the defeat in the First World War, which then gave rise to a kind of uglier kind of, version of history than we'd ever seen before so that relationship between war and like a clear reading on your own past isn't isn't is a complicated one i guess lenny uh, uh no uh, i i don't believe you're touching on something extremely important and this is very central to the development of post cold war world listen learning from what happened after world war one and basically learning of what happened after the World War II, uh, the Western powers after the end of the Cold War made a very clear sentence, we all are victorious. It is not simply that the West has defeated the Soviet Union, we all together. The West and the Russian people defeated communism. But paradoxically, this should have worked under two conditions. First, that if there was economic success in the 1990s, for the bigger part of society, it didn't work. And secondly, what was of course particularly important for the Russian case, the end of communism was also decolonization of Russia, of Soviet empire. 
So from certain point of view, Russia lost territory, Russia lost prestige, 25 million Russians ended up outside of the borders of the country. So suddenly, this kind of idea, you pretend that we are victorious while we are defeated party, was very important. And in a certain way, this was the major difference between Yeltsin period and Putin's period. Till the end of his term, Yeltsin insisted we are victors of the Cold War too, because we defeated communism together. And Putin said, let's stop it. Let's not pretend. We are not victorious power. We are defeated and we are treated like defeated. And then as a result of it, basically, Stalin came as a kind of a, this is the dream of revenge, exactly because there is no normal people who is going to say anything good about somebody like him who killed so many innocent people, suddenly he became the symbol of this kind of a Russian resistance uh, to what happened after the end of the Cold War. I don't know if uh, Lenny agrees with this. I, 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 would, I would take the American case, uh, Tom and Ivan, and look at the end of the Civil War 165 years ago. Um, it has taken until today to even begin any kind of uh, broader consensus about actually what transpired in that war. And it's still being developed and it's still being worked upon. And the 1619 debate that we refer to in this piece is a kind of interesting illustration of that. The 1619 debate calls into question America's founding, where that, that most Americans, actually most people, thought commenced with July 4, 1776, or with the American Revolution, the Constitution, and the like. But the focus now has been turned to 100 years, uh, 150 years prior to that, when the first indentured servants actually were enslaved, as has been uh, 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 miscommunicated. Indentured servants came, uh, 20 of them, to uh, the so-called New World in, in Jamestown, Virginia. This has allowed for a debate in American society that I think is hugely fruitful, but deeply fraught. Uh, we don't know where it's going to go. The French Revolution has been debated by uh, thousands of people and continues to be debated. And that seems only to be for the good of French notions of identity and their own political institutions. The American debate has been far weaker and more fragile. And it's only now that it's starting to happen in earnest the hope is that it could lead to some greater um, consensual of a kind understanding of American history, still fraught, uh, but nevertheless, one that allows uh, additional perspective. You know, just one point, which I do believe you can find interesting. Have you not asked yourself, well, Stalin basically was revived, Lenin was not. If you go on the opinion polls, uh, strangely enough, you're going to see that Stalin and the Stalinist period, because of the World War II, was seen very much favorably, while uh, the Bolshevik Revolution uh, was neither officially celebrated by the Russian government, not much more commented. And this is also quite interesting, because Stalin has become one of the symbols of a powerful Russian state. And for Mr. Putin, this is what matters. This is the power of the state. But you're not going to have a monument and basically to celebrate somebody 
who is resisting the Russian state, which was the Lenin's case. So basically, this is a very interesting kind of a turning Stalin from a revolutionary to counter-revolutionary figure. So I do believe that Trotsky is going to be very happy reading what he's doing <laughs> now. <laughs> so from trying to draw together a few threads of, of what you've said so far, it sounds like, you know, the way to get a grip on history is to, you, you can't be in the victim mindset you you know it, it doesn't help to be wallowing in victimhood as for example um contemporary russians may have been maybe in, interwar germans were and, and then things get more damaging now where does that leave you on things like black lives matters where you know like there's clearly a whole load of ugly truths about british and american past that need to be unearthed but at the same time the argument is put often in a kind of, you know, we need reparations now because we're still hurting 150 years after emancipation. Do you see a danger of a, of a kind of backlash there? Or do you think that that's uh, a reactionary line to take? For me, the most important thing, and this is the reason why we decided to contrast the German experience with the Russian experience is the following. You should make the nation to be ashamed of many things that has happened in its history. But if you are, unable to transform shame and guilt into pride, it's never going to work. And I do believe this is the major challenge from outside, but I'm sure that basically Lenny being there and being part of this debate is going to give you a much more uh, interesting answer. I mean, I think, I think Tom and Yvonne, what will make the movement for black lives ultimately a positive force is if it has a positive political program. I think that for it to rest solely on uh, the uh, reparations of the past uh, will not allow it to, to sustain the kind of collective action that we've seen over the last number of years and especially over, 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 the, over the last few months. So there has to be in some way, some kind of positive political program. But take the, you know, I think we have to come to grips if we could get on this, the, the question of, of, of removing statues for a second. Uh, no one has any problem in the U.S., or very, very few, with removing, say, Confederate generals, people whose stake in political history was solely for one reason. Let's see, we could even call it white supremacy, but let's take Churchill, or let's take uh, Woodrow Wilson even. Churchill's statue is up there because he defeated fascism. Was there a profound hunger uh, in the subcontinent that was caused by imperial policies of Winston Churchill? No question, and it should be reinforced and underscored uh, by historians again and again. But he's, he's on the pedestal because he defeated fascism. So we need to respect these ambivalences. There isn't an ambivalence with a Confederate general, but there is with someone like Churchill or Roosevelt, or yes, even Wilson. Uh, by the way, just to give you a story, there is a Bulgarian artist uh, who came with the idea of the, the most politically correct version of history. So he took all the monuments in Europe in which you have all these kind of statements on horse. And he said all these people are so controversial, they are emperors, they are generals, so probably we should remove the people and leave only the horses. So keeping it not controversial, <laughs> I don't believe we should be very much afraid of having basically a monument that nobody's going to contest. Uh, 
Because it's one thing to contest monuments, it's totally different to remove monuments. Some monuments could be removed, and by the way, in, after 1989, many monuments have been removed in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. But the and after 1789, of course. Yeah, absolutely. But when all the monuments are removed, we're going to see another version of the end of history. Basically, people are going to believe that all people living before us should share the sensitivities that we have now. I mean, to be honest, in this country, I think if you just said, let's have all the statues of horses, people would be very pro that. <laughs> um, just a One of the models that gets bandied around in these conversations is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, which had all the ingredients uh, of a civil war, terrible racism, terrible economic divide, not that that's necessarily got any better, but, but it, it, there was this peaceful and optimistic period, which was quite a thing to pull off. And yet I think both of you are quite sceptical about the ability um, of um, other countries to be able to emulate that. I, th I, th I think you just want to distinguish, Tom, between institutions like the TRC and questions of national identity. Uh, the TRC was an extraordinary institution at its time. Did it ultimately fail in certain aspects? Of course it did. History evolved, things changed, economic equality, inequality deepened and the like. But it was extraordinary, as was the South African Constitution in 94, um, as was the first president uh, post-apartheid of South Africa. But the problem that a lot of transitional justice activists and practitioners, the, the, the problem I have with some of their contentions is the easy replicability of some of these mechanisms and the easy way to transfer them from one context to the next. I think there are parts of the TRC that are transferable. There are parts of the hybrid tribunal in Phnom Penh that might be transferable. But transferring these things wholesale will always be a recipe for disaster. But these are technical instruments that focus on questions of identity, certainly, and, and, and forms of ethnic, racial, and other uh, aspects of reconciliation. But we are talking more broadly about questions of national identity that go deep, I think, deeper than some of these particular commissions. Tom, just uh, uh, one sentence on this. Listen, it's not easy to learn from the lessons of others, particularly when those who basically got these lessons are trying to re-educate you. And here's the story. When basically uh, the transition in Eastern Europe started, uh, Germany was the normal model of dealing with the past because everybody saw the German success. But the interesting story Germans did, they didn't tell East Europeans do what we did. They told them do what we should have done. Well, in the first 20 years after the end of the World War II, Germany was not particularly interested to look at its past. There was this amnesia period, which was the reason why many young people in 1968 went on the streets. The interesting story was that what the Germans told East Europeans and to East Germans particularly was, don't do it. Paradoxically for East Germans, this was the idea of a double standards you didn't treat us in the way you treated yourself. Uh -huh. I see. If I could add one thing to that, Tom, just back to the movement for black lives, I actually think it will be a mistake in the US if the movement for black lives all of a sudden uh, is forced by foundations and, and other uh, institutions to go and learn from other historical experiences. I think what's been powerful about the movement for black lives is that their focus has been within the US. 
U.S. history, U.S. culture, U.S. identity, U.S. institutions. I think it needs to stay that way to sustain it and to make it credible. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, I, I understand. So it's, it's, it's about national stories. Let's just turn for a minute to Britain and its ability or not to do all these things. I mean, until very recently... Britain has had a very deluded idea about its role in the slave trade, which it profited from in enormous ways whilst managing to convince uh, most history books, you know, even till I was at school, that like really its role was in abolishing slavery. And of course, Britain's got a record of crimes around um, the empire as well. But in 2010, 11, um, uh, and, and, and the years running up to that, we, we saw like quite an extraordinary turnaround in Northern Ireland, where, you know, we had the leader of the Conservative government, David Cameron, you know, essentially say, yes, yeah, sorry, the British state was complicit in the mass murder of people on Bloody Sunday in, in Belfast. And, um, you know, this is the leader of a party that had stirred up the civil war in the first place before the First World War. As well as the sort of idea that you've got, which is that every country needs its own approach. I just wondered if you thought that, like, as with Britain doing some things well and some things less well, that's something you find in other countries. Do some countries face up to aspects of their past while being unable to, uh, unable to wrestle with others? Listen, I'll start from Eastern Europe, where we're not uh, very much learned to critically uh, question our history and keep in mind the smaller the country, the level of criticism towards your own <laughs> is less. But I do believe that something which for me is very important is we cannot, and Tony Chad had a very strong point of this. He said, after the end of the Cold War, we turn history and the kind of a textbook of serve, servable lessons. It was a series of never more, never again. I do believe it's critically important to try not to decontextualize history. For me, this is critically important. 
trying to understand people in their context, not in order to justify them, but in order to understand why things have been changing. And yes, there are different, uh, there are different social groups and there are different ethnic groups which are going to rewrite the history in the way it was written. And in the case of the United uh, Kingdom, I do believe this is also going to follow. But I do believe it's very important not to say, or because of this and that, the only people who have the right to write the history is the victims or those who basically now are discovering their truths because history is always going to be contested. And uh, I don't believe the moment when we try to go with history as a verdict making, we're going to lose the most important about history, the way that we can find in it also the inspiration of inclusion of being together. Because yes, it's true, Britain was part the British Empire of slave trade, uh, trade. But at the same time, there was a lot of people that have been fighting it too. So trying to deny this part of the story is going to be as unfair as basically what was happening before where basically in the many British textbooks, uh, the authors forgot to put the fact that before fighting the slave trade, Brits have been practicing it. Um, let's just have a final question really about the mood as you look around the world, if, uh, the two of you I'm sure look at different countries, Trump's trying to run a version I'm sure of American history, Russia we've talked about, also interesting places like Hungary and particularly Poland which is rewriting its role in the Holocaust. When you look, I, I know you've said you don't want to generalise and you want to be um, uh, look at every country in its own context but are you worried about a, a mood, at least in a lot of countries at once, or do you think we're seeing a, a mixed picture of progress in some places and a lack of understanding in others? It's always, it's always a mixed picture. Um, I, th I, I would shy away from, from the notion of mood uh, as, 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 the, as, as, the, as the yardstick here or the indicator. And I think of it more, Tom, as we're facing, frankly, the sort of unequal consequences of a long march towards globalization. And it's had a lot of different effects in a lot of different places. It is true in the world today, it is rather shocking. In fact, one is gobsmacked to look at tin pot despots from Duterte to Lukashenko to Trump to Netanyahu to Sisi to Erdogan. The list goes on and on why there are these uh, particular kinds of autocrats, uh, whether they're rewriting history or um, fomenting forms of injustice. It's a problematic moment, unquestionably, in, in, in world history. Um, and I don't want to say that everything has to, at the end of the day, be exceptionalized. But I think ultimately, uh, the Filipino population is going to come to grips with the way in which Duterte has created for the population a uh, profound set of hazards, um, as well as in other environments. You, Listen, you. I also believe that there is not a general mood, and countries and societies are running in all directions at the same time. But it's very important to go and contextually to read what is happening. For example, there was a moment in Poland in the 1990s where people believed that there was a consensus on the past. It appeared that it was a very thin consensus, and now uh, it was uh, very much blown up. But what we saw also politically during this last presidential elections in Poland is that there used to be a conservative consensus in Poland, and now there is a tiny conservative majority. This consensus is over. For example, 20 years ago, 
Catholic Church in Poland was an uncontested institution. Nevertheless, do you believe or not, because of its role during the communist period, you're not going to hear a major politician in Poland which is going really to question the role of the church. This is not the case now. And I do believe from this point of view, this is why for us this kind of push for exceptionalism is critically important. You cannot ask the Poles to do what basically Germans did or what somebody else did. But also you cannot uh, say to the people, uh, and I don't believe that any type of a political leader, nevertheless how authoritarian he or she is, can simply ban from history to be reinterpreted because it's also a generational move. Every generation is trying to reread the history. And this is something that is quite interesting. And of course, they're going to be less inspiring and much more expiring readings. But I do believe this is what history is about. Well, at least there's no final page on the history book, which is a good note on which to end. So thanks for joining us this week on The Prospects interview. Rebecca Liu is our producer. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating or a review. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.